just sorry, my hair. Rashi, it's the end of uh, September. I know, but I gotta be ready early. Uh, okay. Here, well, it's by Tom Lear. It goes like this. All the Protestants hate the Catholics, and the Catholics hate the Protestants. All the Hindus hate all the Muslims, and everybody hates the Jews. Uh, that's, no. yeah, that's not a Christmas song, really. No, it's for February, but I figure we could do it early. Hi, this is Paul Dini. Hi, this is Misty Lee and my pizza. And guess who we have? Oh my God, you guys, guess who we have? <laughs> um, the pizza guy. We had the pizza guy here, but he's gone. Yes. Scooby-Doo. No, but Scrappy kind of. <laughs> Scrappy kind of. The uh, spiritual you know godfather of Scrappy-Doo, actually. Yeah, go ahead, what? Spiritual godfather of Scrappy-Doo. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Mark Anthony. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Scrappy on here before. Yeah, we, I think we did, didn't I we? Don't, I don't know, but okay. I want to talk about him again. I have no idea what we talked about in the previous well, episode. Well, let's talk about Scrappy so right it, now on this so, one. so if we, we end up, I end up repeating an anecdote, mm -hmm. it is the host's fault. Mm -hmm. Yes, that is. I'll take the blame for all of that because I could hear Mark's stories every day, all the time. I, I, I don't think he's ever repeated a story, but if he does, I don't stop him because I love it when he tells stories. Mm. We've, Will you tell us about Scrappy when my mouth is full? Um, what do you want to know about Scrappy? How, what? How, where where did he come from? Why um, are you associated with him and how? What happened was I was working for Hanna-Barbera and for Ruby Spears and for a couple of their animation studios. Mm -hmm. And one day, Joe Bar... I did a pilot. I wrote a pilot for, for, um, for Ruby Spears that was looked like it was going to get on the ABC Saturday, the fall schedule. Then I get a call from Joe Barbera very urgent, I've got to see you, it's very important. And, you know, when Joe Barbera calls, you go. Mm -hmm. And he shows me these drawings of Scrappy-Doo. I did not create Scrappy-Doo. Mm -hmm. uh, he says that C uh, ABC is thinking of dropping, is, is, one, is it ready to drop Scooby-Doo, to cancel Scooby-Doo, mm -hmm. unless Hanna-Barbera can come up with a new twist to freshen the show and make it different, because they feel that the show has just run its course and mm -hmm. has has has. Um, did you, Paul? Do you ever write these Scooby Doo's? Uh, years later. Um, actually, Scrappy was in it, but uh, oh. Tom Ruger was story editing around 1983. That's when I I wrote okay. like two for him. So yeah. this would have been like five years prior to that, right? Well, Scrappy. yeah. At that at this point, if you were if you wanted to write for the Scrap the Scooby Doo show before Scrappy got into it, here's how it worked. You'd go to the producer or the story editors. And you'd say, uh, how about a ghost who haunting a, haunting a hardware store? <laughs> and they'd say, we did it in season three. Uh. I say, you say, how about a ghost haunting a bowling alley? Said so they'd say, we did it in season two, seven, and we've got one in work for that now. <laughs> how about a ghost haunting a you know? And you'd go on and on, yeah. and then you'd suddenly say, uh, how about a ghost uh, haunting a? Uh, you have a ghost of a um, a chicken that's haunting a, a, a KFC type restaurant. Perfect. And yeah. they'd go. Hold on, wait a minute, hold on. They go over these lists and they pull out these lists and go, no, chicken, 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 no, no, no. Did we do a chicken? Oh, we did, we, okay. And you had an assignment. <laughs> you had no other story. Hired. <laughs> you had no other, you, had, you didn't have to have any other plot figured out at that point because oh they God. could always figure out that part. You'd done the hard part of it. Okay. Yeah. So I was writing a few Scooby-Doo's at that time and I had written the Scooby-Doo comic book. So they had had every in-house writer at Hanna-Barbera write 
an out, a, a outline or a script for a Scrappy-Doo episode, and ABC still didn't have a fix on how the character worked or why he was interesting or what made him worth adding to the show, and they were inclined to not pick up the series. Mm. And Joe said, you're our last chance, or he said something like that. <laughs> we're going to have you write, we want you to write a pilot script. Uh, that, uh, and he said the word pilot script. That was an interesting thing because huh. we ended up with a fight over this. And and uh, we want you to write a pilot script that in, in, that shapes Scrappy Doo and makes him into a character and makes the show something that ABC will purchase. Okay. Uh-huh. And I said okay. And we had a couple of meetings on this. And at one point, you know, Joe started telling me how he he envisioned the character, and he didn't say. There were two words he didn't say, but I kept hearing them. And the two words were Henry Hawk. Yeah. Okay. They kept saying, he kept saying, he's got this kind of spunky attitude. And, he, and I kept thinking to myself, he's describing Henry Hawk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at that time, the vice president of children's programming, the guy at ABC who had the final say, was a man named Squire Rushnell. Yep. Who okay. was said, and I think this was exaggerated, to never buy a show unless he saw a connection to Warner Brothers classic cartoons in it. Oh wow! That he that he just lo- they said oh he loves the Warner Brothers. You, in order to sell a show to Squire, you got to come in and say, well this character is like the Coyote, but with Pepe Le Pew and and Tasmanian Devil, whatever it was. Right. And um, so I thought to myself, why don't they just say Henry Hawk? And but nobody ever said this aloud. I went home and I wrote a couple of scenes with Scrappy-Doo talking like Henry Hawk. I just heard Henry Hawk's voice in my head. Came in, Joe said, you've nailed it. This is it. This is what we want. And then I, so I wrote a script. And, oh, then, then we had to make a deal, mm-hmm. which was the hardest part of this. We had to make a deal with for my age, my services. Right. And we, and we by the way, we were like under the gun. They were going to make set the schedule in like four days. It's nice had, to make a deal to, after it's in. Yeah, yeah. well, they, we didn't. No, we had to make the deal before I started writing. Oh, 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 mm. oh, oh. So the business affairs guy um, who uh, uh, was one of the, they had one of these business affairs guys who always acted like it was his money. <laughs> like like his chil- his children were not going to get dinner that night because you wanted more money. Mm-hmm. Right. And my agent at the time said, "Look, this is a pilot, uh, so it should be it should pay more than a regular episode." And he said, "This is not a pilot. Scooby Doo's been on for eight years or nine years, whatever it was. How can it be a pilot in the ninth year?" And he, he my agent said, "Joe Barbera said it was a pilot," and they argued over this and they made me an insulting offer that I it was like. 10% above a regular episode. And I said, wait a minute. I'm going to do like 12 drafts of this thing and rewrite it and mm-hmm. go to the network and you're going to sell another se- season based on this or not. Mm-hmm. It's a pilot. And it should pay pilot money. And, yeah. and so we, they fought about this. And finally, I refused to do it for the money they offered. And the guy in business affairs um, uh, called me up after he got off my agent telling him, my agent giving him the, you know, refusing the offer, and the guy started screaming at me and telling me, I was never going to work for Hanna-Barbera again. You're banned in this building. I said, well, I am the editor-in-chief of your of your comic book division, too, you know, yeah. at this point. <laughs> he said, well, bold, we'll but... see about that. Uh-huh. And he hung up on me, furious. Okay. And I was banned from Hanna-Barbera for 14 minutes, uh-huh. which is how long it took before Joe Barbera called and said, don't pay any attention to that asshole in business affairs. Awesome. Um, Joe, Joe, Joe kind of loved doing that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And 
they met my price barely. Mm -hmm. I wrote the script in a couple of days, and then I get this call from somebody at Ruby Spears saying, "Well, congratulations! They didn't buy the our show that you did the pilot for. They're backing up Scooby Doo instead." Oh no! So I, you know, you were double. I kind of slipped my own throat there, but. and they picked up Scrappy Doo, Scooby Doo, thirteen episodes of Scrappy Doo in it. Okay. And you want you want the whole story about casting the voices? I do. Like that? Well, but you know what? It, you you were right, absolutely right. That was a pilot because I remember watching the premiere episode and it had a different title sequence. It had a it was caught, had a different title. It was Scooby and Scrappy Doo. Uh huh. And so it actually was a brand new show. Well, like, the the premise was that it should be a pilot because it's being used to sell. The series mm-hmm. it's being, it was used yeah, to yeah. sell thirteen I more. Think that's legit. Yeah, no, it was absolutely legit. <laughs> yeah. And and later on, the business affairs guy apologized to me. He was just of course he did. That was just his his. Uh, he actually did. He actually made a real sincere apology for that and about nine other offenses. <laughs> well, um, fish got to swim, birds got to fly. You know it, it's amazing guys. sometimes how business affairs people can be so intractable and impossible with what is not their money. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Um, and they get real angry and nasty and, and, and confrontational. And then, uh, you, at some point, you run into them in another context. They're in another job or they've changed it. And it's like, hey, that was just wrestling. That was just my job, you know. And they're so friendly about it. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I have a little trouble forgiving them occasionally. But this guy did a, did because a couple Because they're of, crazy. Well, they're... They think too often that they are their job depends on getting things cheap. So frequently they harm the product. Mm. Um, and okay. there are environments where, you know, you're rewarded for getting, you know, the writing done on a show, uh, you know, ten thousand dollars writing lowering the writing budget ten thousand dollars, even if it means getting inferior writing that causes the show to get canceled. Mm-hmm. You've done your part okay. You know, it was the writers who failed in that context. Right, the numbers were, yeah. were wonderful. Yeah, 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 you know, and and the other thing that happens amazingly is that a number of times business affairs people will cost the company a fortune saving the money. Oh yeah, I worked for a company one time where every time the business affairs guy had a um, an idea that would save the company money, it would cost them a fortune. And it, it, he 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 one time. Um, I won't tell the whole story because it's way too long about. But this one guy, he had idea they were going to use a, a piece of video in a documentary. This company I was working on, and he said, "Oh, we don't need to pay for that. We can just use this other clip, oh, no. and no one will know where it's from, and we don't have to pay for it." Oh, someone always knows where it's from. And they got so it cost them three quarters of a million dollars for not spending the the five thousand dollars for the clip. It yep. was like that. And the, the head of the company went to this business affairs guy. He, he didn't fire him, but he said. Please, please don't try to save me any money. I can't afford it. Right? <laughs> yes. So you get that a lot. How'd you cast Scrappy Doo? Um, well, I didn't cast it. Hanover was casting it. We went through all these rewrites and rewrites of the pilot script and changing things over. So they first thought was to get Mel Blanc because of the connection with Warner Brothers, which we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And Mel wanted a, a sum of money. Um, you know, he wanted a, a, a check so large the amount would have had to be continued on the next check. <laughs> so he was out. Okay. And then they did auditions, and then they picked. Now I, I may have the sequence wrong on this, but over the they kept. It was like who's what day is it? Who's the voice of Scrappy today? They kept changing. They kept re-recording mm-hmm. the show. 
At one point, it was Dawes Butler. At mm. one point, it was Don Messick. At one point, it was Marilyn Schreffler. Oh, wow. At one point, it was... Um, God, I've lost track on these things. I My suggestion was, I kept saying, get Howie Morris. Because I thought having Howie, casting Howie Morris to play a little feisty, angry guy was like you know casting Orson Welles to play a fat man. Yeah. Uh, but... Um, it went back and forth with different people, and finally, they came in one day and they said, "It's absolutely settled. It's going to be Paul Winchell." And then they hired Lenny Weinrib. Oh yeah. my God! Yeah. So Lenny did it with Scrappy Doo for a whole season, and then he had a fight with the director, and he wanted more money and a different director to come back for another year. Bold. And they hired they, they, for like an hour. They hired me to direct Scooby Doo the second season until they found. They had to pay me. Mm-hmm. So suddenly they realized they had to pay me, at which point uh, they went back to Don Messick, who was the first Scrappy Doo, and he, he did Scrappy for thereafter. Oh, they, wow. They replaced oh, okay. with Don Messick. Hmm. Uh, so, um, but it, it went through lots and lots of people, and Scrappy went on the show, and the ratings picked up a bit, mm-hmm. and he saved Scooby Doo. Mm-hmm. And. <clears throat> To my and people seem to love Scrappy and love Scrappy and love Scrappy and then a few years ago I just started finding this Scrappy hatred on the internet as if you know people were saying he destroyed the Scooby Doo show and I said wait a minute he saved this it. is this is the Scooby Doo show I mean even if he was okay I mean I can understand if you know somebody ruined a performance of Swan Lake right right you know, but, yeah. but was it that wonderful a show before he was on it? Was it that different after he was on it? <laughs> um, you know, this this is you know. I love the internet. Where else in the world can you go to find hatred for Scrappy Doo? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and, the, and the reason I found out about I watched, this, I watched thirty five seconds of a weasel having a fight with a stuffed animal the other day, and I thought, this is what the internet is for. <laughs> Gee. And it wasn't porn? No. Oh, okay. I don't know, maybe it was somebody's porn. You never know with, with the internet. I think kids have grown up embracing something, and then they get to be like 20 or 30, and they go oh, look oh, back. Who, who won, the stuffed toy or the weasel? It was kind of a draw because nobody got hurt. Okay, and pop goes the weasel. And pop, right? yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And pop, yeah. Right. So um, um, they just don't like what was they liked when they were a kid or something, or it looks infantile to them. Not that Scooby-Doo is infantile, but Scrappy-Doo somehow didn't make the cut. The way I found out about... Um, Scrappy Doo hatred was. I got a phone call from Chile. The, the not the the, the, the food the country, or the, the country, okay. the nation, as opposed to the bowl of beans and <laughs> where Lenny Weinrib had retired. Oh, that's oh. right. Lenny yeah. moved to Chile one day, and he called me up, and in, in Scrappy's voice, he said, "Why do these people hate me?" And because he, he, he was on the internet, and he's and he you know, Googled himself, and that led to him to find. This site Someone where this, Googling themselves this, on this the internet person, and then they call you. <laughs> Never happens, Sounds right? Sounds really dirty. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> uh, I always feel sorry for people who have bland last names and brand names. You know, I can I can find myself on the internet really easily. Mm, yeah, you okay? can. Yeah. My friend Jim George, he can't find himself on the internet no. to save his life. <laughs> so uh, uh, You're also kind of all over the internet. You're the king of the internet kind of the way you're the king of Comic-Con. Nobody's the king of internet, or and nobody's the king of Comic-Con. You're kind of the king of Do you realize of how infant... Decimal we are at Comic-Con, let alone the internet. I always refer to you as the Lord High Mayor of Comic-Con. And he you does. should have oh. a sash and a Willy Wonka hat to I wear. Phil Folio has a sash already. Well, let's mug him for the sash. And, uh, <laughs> and, and you have plenty of top hats. You can give him an Mark extra top, top hat. They're full of rabbits, though. Yeah, oh, yeah. they are. They are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, 
But if anybody can handle them, you are. Mark's been taking magic lessons. Um, I've been re- I've been brushing up on my br- br- brushing up my magic. Yes, on I've been, of then, hand. Then, yes, I, with I, one of the best teachers. I'm trying trying to to get back to where I was years ago. I neglected it too long. You, it's a use it or lose it thing. So um, uh, uh, anyway, Lenny, Lenny, Lenny was chili. Lenny was like crushed by two by by you know two messages on the internet. Now later he found others. He he just and I don't understand getting that upset about and I do, do know people who love Scrappy and think he was just wonderful and I just I'm kind of indifferent on the subject. I, I love him. I, I thought I thought Scooby Doo was the exact same show with him or without him. Uh-huh. So anyway that's the Scrappy Doo story. It's a good and one. I, and and people keep calling me the creator of Scrappy Doo, which is not true. There was a design, there was a name. All I did was write the pilot. You were kind of like pilot, you, you were in him. you were in the role of of Scooby and I midwife, Shaggy. As, I midwife as, Scrappy Doo. As I remember that title <laughs> sequence, they're waiting at the train station and a box is tossed off and there's Scrappy Doo. So you you kind of got you know the box tossed to you and there he was. You had custody for, for a while. Uh-huh. Fine. It's Fine. been it's been a few years. You know we've had other generations grow up with Scooby Doo. There've been so many iterations of Scooby Doo. Just within the last ten years, there've been at least three or four different series Mm -hmm. so do you think the time has come for a new scrappy do like things will be cyclical and they'll create a new scrappy do or a new they probably will i don't well they did scooby dumb or whatever his name there was there was scooby dumb there was scooby d at one point um i don't know i you know i wrote the scooby doo comic book for a long time and i never got that into scooby doo at that Uh much it was it was a fun comic book to write and you know the episodes i wrote were fun to do but I, i never and I, I think one of the, the appeals of the character, and I'm basing this in part on going to schools and teaching kids how to draw, which I do occasionally, and, and, and they love Scooby-Doo, is the fact, is the familiarity, the familiarity of the character. He's there all the time. He's just ubiquitous, and you can't escape him, and they love that mm-hmm. in him. Um, I don't know why, but they, they just embrace him. I don't have a huge opinion on that, I'm afraid. I was maybe 11 when Scooby-Doo came on the first time, and I I kind of, like, worked out of, you know, I still watch Saturday morning cartoons, but I, was, I had gone beyond the period of really embracing them like I had with the Flintstones or, or Top Cat or something. But um, one of the things that I really, and I was kind of warm on the, uh, lukewarm on all of Scooby-Doo, and there were a couple of episodes I really liked. The only episodes I liked were the ones where he actually acted like a dog. And... There were, a, a very rarely, and they did in the first season, occasionally they'd be menaced by a monster and he would actually jump in front of the other kids and bark at the monster until he got too scared and ran away. And they never did that after the first season. I guess he was so effective as sort of like... I think they found the comedy was in the, it was in the, the cowardliness of it. Yeah. But, you know, the thing that always strange about that was the premise of the Scooby-Doo show initially was there's no such thing as ghosts. Right. There's no such thing as ghosts. They're all fake. Don't believe in ghosts. Okay, that's not a, that's not a bad premise. Mm-hmm. And so then for the so you know every week the kids believe there's a ghost and they found out there isn't a ghost. And the, every every week and every week and every week it, there's no it, the ghost is not real. Then they had a season called the Scooby Doo movies. If you remember yes. that they did where they had guest stars, and at that point helping Scooby prove that there were no such thing as ghosts, they had Speed Buggy, a talking car. Right. They had. Um, they didn't, they didn't they do one with um, the genie, the I Dream of Genie character, yeah, I right. think? That's yeah. right. So they have a, a magic genie is proving there's no such thing as ghosts. Yeah. Um, you know, 
Laurel and Hardy were that two dead guys are proven as those. That was the one I was going to mention. It's yeah. like when they picked them up on the road. It's like <laughs> these guys are ghosts. Yeah, I mean it's it's uh, um, uh, this you know becomes a, a strange piece of, of logic there. Yeah, and then at some point. They finally went. We've done enough fake ghost stories. Let's just have real. They started putting real monsters. Real monsters, yeah. Real ghosts in the thing. Yeah. Because they just had run out of, of um, that. And uh, it goes on. There will be another scrap Scooby Doo show at some point. They'll have Scrappy back in it. It's never going to go away. They'll just get revamped and refried. And Scrappy wasn't a movie. He was the bad guy. I didn't. I never saw any of the movies. Oh, the second movie. Yeah, yeah. he was the main bad guy. Yeah. yeah. Well, by right, the then. way, Scrappy Mid- Mark Evanier, Scrappy Midwife, name of this podcast. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> the Scrappy Midwife. They should create a Scrappy Do designed to be hated by everybody. Just go right there from the get go. Why? I like him. Make I him think an he's super cute. Make him an annoying hipster and call him Scrappy uh. Douche. And he's got like the little. Or why not? He's got the not, little beanie and the squ- Scooby Douche. You and know? then ha- he could be a totally new character. You just saved. The series. I did. Again. I did. And yeah, I got him an adult it. swim series because instead of that little shield, mm-hmm. he's going to wear a little marijuana leaf and he and Shaggy are going to be high. Well, they're high all the time anyway, I guess, depending wow. on the popular literature. I mean, that's what the characters have kind of evolved to. People make fun of the characters to such a degree that they sort of, I don't know, people think of them that way. They become anyway. a parody of themselves. Uh, enough people said Aquaman is a lame hero and then enough people believed it. And I never thought it was that lame a hero. I, I saw him like kissing them. a girl the other day and went, really? Aquaman? Yeah. Oh, Mira. Uh, I don't know what that is. That's his wife. Oh, I didn't know he was. He had a wife. Yeah. I I, I thought he wasn't. Can I segue right. from Scooby <laughs> Doo to, to an art uh, a piece Mr. Evanier wrote on the death of Saturday morning? Sure. That that I got an email from someone saying I tell you what killed Saturday morning Scrappy Doo. Oh, oh no! no! That was forty <laughs> years ago. That's well, a slow death. Yeah. That yeah. might be hot. Please be careful. But, they, you know, <laughs> what, huh? I'm eating pizza while we're talking. <laughs> Sorry. There, I guess there is no... Now, NBC, CBS, and ABC... I guess ABC got out of it the last of them, like, about five years ago. But they're all running what? Sports? Religious programs? Test patterns? <laughs> Nobody sure. watches Saturday Soul morning. Train, Soul Train. Soul Train. Soul Train. Yeah, that's what was always on after cartoons when I was a kid, so I think yeah. it's on all the time now. <laughs> Wouldn't it be awesome if all the displaced, unemployed cartoon characters are now on Soul Train? Oh, that would be great. Like you'd have Scooby and Scrappy and, uh, I don't know, the Thundercats and everybody. Uh, no, and... that would not be. Can we go back to Mark's essay? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right, what do you want to talk about? Um, so Saturday morning is no more. It's not on broadcast TV. They're, but they're, ironically, they're cartoons everywhere. They're car- that's why you don't need them on Saturday morning anymore. They're everywhere. Yeah. And you said that was not necessarily a bad thing because animation is more prevalent and it's not, to use the expression of the time, ghettoized. Well, it, it, first of all, it's helpful for animators and people that there's, no, there's more than three buyers now. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we were in an era where there were three buyers and four studios. Uh-huh. And that's why the project was so homogenized. And that's why you had people who could sell a cartoon show by coming in and saying, it's a cross between Wile E. Coyote and the Tasmanian Devil, or whatever yeah. they said, because there were just these three buyers. Yeah. Um, and uh, the more buyers, the more opportunities they have. And um, that's why animation is much more diverse. There's many more styles. Mm-hmm. There's more kinds of shows. And we have a lot more freedom in doing them. Yeah, I agree. It's not necessarily a bad thing. I miss the familiarity of 
and this is again through the eyes of nostalgia sitting down with the serial and seeing the new shows come on but then beyond a certain point they weren't new shows anymore they were retreads of characters that producers could get the rights to and put them in less creative packages you know i remember at one point every producer in town was after well the rights to woody woodpecker are available or herman and catnip are available we can pitch that to the network that exists before there were certain shows that were pitched so many times i think every animation studio in town did at least three different developments of wolfman jack oh yeah uh, i don't know wow. ne- never got never got on but for some reason somebody thought wolfman jack was a key for a cartoon show. Do you think it was the same guy who just bounced around from studio to no, studio? No, no, I think I think it was an idea that was out there and maybe somebody at some network had was a fan of Wolfman Jack or something. But every time I turned around a studio was doing it. Like there were certain ideas that got developed over and over again. I don't know how Michael much, Jackson. You Yeah, Michael Jackson. I, I was I think I did the last Michael Jackson development. Mm-hmm. Hopefully ever. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, there was a hopefully period when, when everybody wanted to do a Marx Brothers cartoon show. Not necessarily for Saturday morning, hmm. but there must have been a half dozen of those developed. Those. Um, Earl wrote um, one of those for Filmation. For Filmation, that's mm-hmm. right. Earl Crest did. The script was really good. I remember and, seeing uh, it. Yeah, and you went over all these, and there's just certain ideas that wouldn't go away. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking, trying to blank, there's, a other, there's others like that. Um, but, uh, and then certain ideas would come along, and it'd be must-buy things. There was one year at NBC... When they were going to buy, uh, this is, well, when I tell you what the shows were, you'll can figure out the year from this. Uh, Hanna-Barbera, at that time, was uh, uh, owned by a company called, I think it was Taft Broadcasting, mm-hmm. which also owned Ruby Spears. Okay. So they, each year, would sell, between the two of them, six or seven or eight shows on the three net, to the three networks. And there was this thing they would do every year, which I called... The last minute Hanna Barbera end run. They would. There was a period there for a week or two where you, they'd know roughly how many shows they were going to sell, right? And who would buy who would buy them. And there'd be some player who was new into the marketplace. Somebody like some new company was going to might was looked like they were going to sell a show, and Hanna Barbera would have a meeting and they'd say, "How do we sell a? How do we sell one more show?" We think we're going to sell seven. We got to sell eight. We think we're going to sell eight. We got to sell nine. Whatever it is, and we got to get that new player out of the game. Oh wow! So we must get that time slot that would otherwise go to the new show from a new production company. We must get it for either Hanna Barbera or Ruby Spears, and they would go to the networks that was the network that was going to buy that show and say, "What do we have to do to get that show that slot oh, time slot?" Wow. And the network would tell them something that they wanted that they couldn't get, and Hanna-Barbera would get it. And I did a pilot one time for NBC that was tentatively on the schedule, and the Taft people went to the NBC executives and said, what, could, what is in your wildest fantasy, what show would you want you think was commercial? And they'd say, well, the thing we most want is Mr. T., Okay. <laughs> Everybody had been after Mr. T that year, and Mr. T had laid down a price for himself for it to be a cartoon character that was prohibitive. And Hanna-Barbera people went, okay, and, and Ruby Spears wound up producing that show, but they just wrote this huge check to Mr. T. Not so much because they thought that show 
was going to be cost effective or successful, but because it froze a competitor out of the out of the marketplace, mm. and they sold that one of the show. My show, the show I developed, didn't get on wow. because of that. And every year there would be one of those. Mm. Um, and Mr. T was the one that year. It actually actually was a pretty decent show, oddly enough. Mm. But uh, because Joe Ruby did a good job on it, but mm -hmm. uh, it got on the air for the wrong reason. Mm -hmm. um, so boy, they were really. Well, they were they. It was their domain there, and they were there. And of course, Hanna Barbera was was at that point programming all three networks pretty much. Yeah. And there were there were time slots where a Hanna Barbera show on CBS was opposite a Hanna Barbera show on NBC and a Hanna Barbera show on ABC. What a wonderful so, problem. So so Joe Barbera, <laughs> you know, the ratings were like, how do we do? We won. <laughs> you don't have to, you don't have to look won? at them. Yes. You know. <laughs> uh, and they didn't really care that much which show beat each other the other show so that's one of the reasons the shows weren't more wonderful because they weren't trying to beat the other guy that badly mm -hmm. they were the other guy mm -hmm. uh, they also had a very strange situation there at Hanna-Barbera at that time the time I was working there the idea was if you had a new show the first season they'd buy 13 of them the show was successful enough to pick up for a second season they'd order eight half hours so they could then freshen it, and they could now have a bigger library to rotate in the episodes. If they didn't pick up the show, they could buy a new show. And Hanna-Barbera was in this position where if a Hanna-Barbera show got canceled, it was usually replaced by another Hanna-Barbera show. So if the And it would show... also kind of be a better deal for them, because then they were guaranteed 13 as opposed to 8. That's right. right. This is what okay. Max Bialy's stock built his empire on. Right? <laughs> you can make more money with a flop than with a hit. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, it's springtime so, for Hitler. That's right. Visit. So the show was canceled. <laughs> um, it was like, oh, oh boy, now we're going to sell 13 to replace it instead right. of 8. They get 5 extra. That's right. It's but, a 5 episode bonus for failing. But what I think is really interesting is oftentimes those shows, even if they only got 13 and then bought a new show in its place the next year, that original order of 13 would still wind up running forever in the syndication. And then How do kids not get mad? It would like, be, I get pissed when I see the same Adventure Time over and over. Well, there was only one season of Top Cat. There was only one season of original. Well, Top Cat was a whole, like, I think it was like 20 episodes. Yeah, there was, there was, there was no, not 30 episodes. That's my favorite. Yeah. yeah. But I remember, I remember, like, well, well, the Hair of Air Bunch was only like one season. I don't well, even know I don't, what that I don't is. Think, I don't think Top Cat was ever stripped five a week in most places. I think it was a weekly show. Right. So okay. 26 was enough to, 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 you know, for kids to... First, first of all, they discovered... One of the things they discovered about Saturday morning in the 60s, and I don't know how applicable it still is, is the kids did like a certain amount of repetition. Okay. Right. There was a certain rhythm. They liked seeing an episode, and this may have been one of the appeals of Scooby-Doo, yeah. If you watched the episode and you remembered who the villain was, it was fun to watch it the next time because you were ahead of the story the second time. Okay, through. I could see that. Um, but there was such a thing as a show that repeated uh, uh, too often. and, and uh, There was a, a balance to find. And, it, and for a long time, the judgment of whether a show was a hit was never done on the first airing. Because an awful lot of shows would do fine the first 13, and then when they hit the reruns, they would just plunge. Okay. When we did the first Garfield series, it did real well for the first 13 they aired, and people at CBS were real cautious. And then when it went up on the second run of those episodes, that's when they picked it up for another three years. Up? Uh, because, because it went up. Okay. Because the competition went down. Okay. That makes, uh, that makes sense to me. There, was okay. a, there, were, there were a couple of shows that, were, that people thought they had hits until they hit the reruns. 
and then the show just dropped off completely. Mm -hmm. Kids did not want to watch one of them again. Huh. Um, so that was... It, well, it, and, and you also made an interesting point because being in our time, you know, like contemporary animation, you kind of see these shows every day. You know, like once they're run, they're run again and again and again. I mean, Gumball is every day almost. You mm -hmm. know, like it's a, it's that kind of stuff on Cartoon Network. They just run their content over and over and over Sponge again. Yeah. I don't understand what they're doing on Cartoon Network and Boomerang with the Garfield shows. And, 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 and why should they tell me I'm only the supervising producer? <laughs> um, I've been in your boat. Right? They will take, they will put the show on for a while. They'll take it off for a while. Uh -huh. They put it back on. They've now got it at this moment. It's on Boomerang three times a day, three three hours a day on Boomerang, wow. and two hours on Saturday and Sunday. Hell three hours Monday residuals. through Friday and two hours. Yeah. And they're running seasons one through three, which have now been run 30 or 40 times. Wow. So, and I don't know why they don't run the new shows or run it. And then, they'll, and then I know they'll take it off at some point mm -hmm. and then bring it back. So... Uh, there's a logic there that, uh, and I'm not privy to this. I mean, I'm sure there's a reason for it. I just don't understand that part of the business anymore. I remember when I was a kid, the litmus test of what was a popular cartoon show was a, a little bit like what they were talking about in the schoolyards, you know, after the show had been running a few weeks. But a year after the show debuted, they usually came on in September. The following September, or late August, I could go to the supermarket. There'd be a display of thermos and Aladdin lunchboxes. Yeah. And if a show was lunchbox worthy, <laughs> then the show had some permanence. Or soaky toy worthy. Soaky toy oh, worthy. Oh, soaky toys were a commitment. Yeah. They took a couple years to That's produce. Nice. Or Ben Cooper costumes, too. Like, if you went there and... They actually had licensed Ben Cooper costumes back then? Yeah, well, the Ben Cooper was a... You know, I know the, what the they were. costumes, but, you know... But they usually did, like, generic witches and stuff. No, no, they would do, you know... Years after they would stop making new episodes, I could go in... To the the local toy store, and then there, this was one where there was a toys Toys R Us in our area. There was like Huckleberry Hound, Yogi Bear costume, Sylvester. It, it was kind of cyclical. Like characters that had been around for years would come back. Like Tweety was always a perennial, uh -huh. and there'd be new characters like Sabrina, the teenage witch. And it's like, oh yeah, sure, I guess her show was popular. And then it would be um, uh, characters from movies, and, and and then Bionic Man was big. You know, you could get the Bionic Man in the box with the glowing, with the ping on glow on the eye and everything mm -hmm. like that. The trouble with the Bionic Man costume was when you wore it, you had to go in slow motion so you got less candy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you get? I got a rock. Oh, <laughs> But then you could throw it really hard through the Yeah, slowly, but very, very hard, yeah. yeah. Oh, I have a, uh, the versions of Charlie Brown, like, I have a, uh, this is coming out of nowhere. Uh, but I was watching some of the old Charlie Brown specials on DVD recently, and I, the ones they made in order were Charlie Brown Christmas, then Charlie Brown's All Stars, which you never see anymore. We run. No, isn't it? The baseball. I thought the, the Halloween one was second. No, actually, that was made in mid '66, and then the Halloween one. And I, I noticed something very interesting watching it. Is there's long sequences, and the kids all quit Charlie Brown's team because they think he's a loser. Then he gets them. A local store to give them uniforms and they're willing to go back. But there's a long sequence where all the kids are on skateboards, because skateboards were big in like the mid 60s. And none of them are wearing safety gear. And I'm wondering if that has contributed to that being yanked, and they, they don't show that anymore, because they're all on skateboards. The girls, Snoopy. Can you hear him? And, or, and I don't know. Uh, 
because that one is so rarely seen, I was wondering if somebody had a problem with the lack of safety work. I, I never heard that. I could ask Lee Mendelson if you want and report back to you. Okay, I could be just wacky, but, uh, you know, that's something, you know, you can, we got away with an amazing amount of gunplay in shows like Batman, and as long as the characters, when they got in a car, had a seatbelt, we were okay with that. Do you realize that Charlie Brown Christmas is the most profitable half hour of television ever produced? I did not know that. It is every year it reruns, reruns very well, and and the producer gets an awful lot of money for it every year. Mm -hmm. It's been rerun more than any single half hour special ever made, mm -hmm. and it still draws huge ratings. Mm -hmm. And to me, the interesting test of its, the interesting example of its popularity is this. Yeah. At Christmas time, you go to stores. There's music. They're playing Christmas songs. Yeah. Now, what makes a Christmas song a Christmas song? There's two things that make a Christmas song a Christmas song. One is the lyrics, yes, and the other is jingle bells. It sounds like jingle bells. It's Christmassy yes. jingle sound. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Now, if you're in a store, you hear um, music. You see, you hear instrumental versions. Yes. Right? So you'll hear. Let's say you'll be playing Silent Night, uh -huh. and that's Christmas music because it makes you think of the lyrics to Silent Night. Exactly. And you hear, you know, the, the theme to. Um, we wish you a Merry Christmas, and yeah. that's Christmas music because it reminds you of the lyrics that say, we wish you a Merry Christmas. Uh -huh. And then you'll hear them playing the Linus and Lucy song, the right. Linus song, uh -huh. and that's a Christmas song because it reminds you of a TV special you love. That's right, that's right. The lyric, there's the lyric, There are lyrics to that song, they have nothing to do with Christmas. Mm -hmm. the, the music has no jingle bells in it, the only connection it has with Christmas is when you hear that song, it reminds you of the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Right. I know, it's it's in the Vince Guaraldi song, and uh, they used it in, that's the dance number that they, they, they do the go-go dance to yeah. in the middle. And then that's the opening sequence of the Halloween special. I mean, it's sort of like Vince Guaraldi has become synonymous with Christmas by kind of osmosis. Mm. At, the, so. at some point in the future, they'll play Cast Your Fate to the Wind and say, oh, that's a Christmas song. Um... Hey, this year is the 50th anniversary of Rudolph. That's right, yes. 1964. I remember watching that, the, the General Electric Fantasy Hour. I couldn't figure out how they got Burl Lives in that little snowman costume. <laughs> ten, ten years ago when I was on Lost, you know, the, the show premiered that fall and we were getting great ratings and uh, and uh, everybody's saying, I wonder what the ratings are going to be like tonight. I said, well, we're, we're going to lose the hour. And they said, You're, how, how are we going to lose the hour? Where are they running? I said, Rudolph, you're out of your head, you're out of your mind, that show's like a zillion years old. The next day, we lost the night to Rudolph, and it's like, yes, we did. So, even even Lost could compete with, uh, with Rudolph. You remember going to that stop-motion animation studio? You came with us, didn't you? No, it was Tom, uh, when you were having that Jingle Bell thing for the cover. Oh, yeah, when I did I did a stop-motion version. Did something to do with that? I felt like Mark was there. I was not there. No. I don't know. I feel I like you're know, everywhere. I don't know what this is. Oh, she's still over in the robot chicken offices. I have to go get her. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I have to call them up and say, hey, I need to you hold up. Mm -hmm. uh, can I fire a few quick questions at you? Sure. Feel how fast quick questions. Okay. Uh, what everybody wants to know, the Kirby settlement, Kirby Marble settlement. Can you talk at all about that? No. Okay. <laughs> uh, we can assume, though, the Kirby family is pleased. Marvel. I think that's safe to assume. I think, I think a lot of people at Marvel are thrilled and happy about it. Very good. I'm, I'm personally delighted about it because that's been a long time in coming. And I remember that story that you told me about taking Jack to the Toys R Us. And, you know, uh, yeah. Did we ever 
you ever told that story? No, we've never told that no. story. Oh, this was about, it was at the time the Incredible Hulk cartoon TV show went on with Bill Bixby. So about 79. Yeah, and we went shopping one day. I was out with the Kirby's, and we went shopping to a, sh a mall. And Roz went in, his Jack's wife Roz went into a, a market to get a few things, and Jack and I decided to wait in the car. And there was a Toys R Us there. And I just suddenly said to him, hey, let's walk around the Toys R Us. And he and, and this look of horror came over his face. It was, it was a very innocent question. He said, no, no, I can't go in there. And I thought it was a joke because Toys R Us at that time you know, was not letting unsupervised children of a certain age. Said, Jack, you're old enough to let you in. And he said with this great seriousness, no, no, I really can't go in there. And I changed the subject quickly because I obviously touched a something awful, wrong. And later on when I was alone with Roz, I asked her and she said he can't win, he gets too upset to see his, his drawings everywhere on his toys that, oh. that don't pay his family anything. Right. Oh. Uh, and, uh, and I thought to myself, yeah, that's, and, you know, it, it, that's, and, and Jerry Siegel was like that. Jerry yeah. Siegel was just, there was a certain, um, like, like, it was like, it was like with Jerry, it was like the world was rubbing it in his face that he wasn't getting money on Superman. Hey, look! Look at this! Look at this Superman thing, Jerry, that you don't get money off of. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so, you know, that's one of the reasons we're happy that this thing is finally resolved. I've lived with it for. Well, I met Jack in '69. I lived with it that long. Wow, it's 50 and, years. Uh, years. And so, the fact that now there's a resolution. Uh, now, has it just been announced, or is it like it, done? It's been announced. The deal's been the deal's made. The deal's it's been announced. So it's executed. The, the, it's the, it's happening. It is legal now. It's not just we're everywhere. We we may have reached. No, they, it they, is, they, they, the the um, uh, on last Monday. I don't know when this is airing. The last last Monday, the Supreme Court was going to take up the case. Right. And mm -hmm. they settled it the Thursday night before. Mm -hmm. uh, and and the case and on, on Friday. The case was withdrawn, so the Supreme Court didn't consider it. Hmm. I was looking forward to Judge Scalia reading my briefs and saying, "What does this Evinger person think about this?" Because <laughs> <laughs> you know he'd get my name wrong. Of course, you know, of course. You know, so I don't know. Your blog is pretty widely read. He might, you know, he might be a reader. Oh, if he read it, then he'd really rule against us. <laughs> uh, he read what I said about him, and you tell him. Well, you know, I, I, I'm very very happy, and I'm sure lots of people are, are most everybody is, is very happy. But I think it also speaks to the uh, spirit and the, the the class of Jack and Roz, that they, they were very good people, and they were very nice people, uh, especially to fans, that they, you know, throughout their later years, they always had a kind word for fans, and they always had time for fans, and he didn't let a lot of bitterness that he could have felt keep him away from being Generous with his time with the fans. I, I took you out to Ra take Roz out to dinner one night. Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. took Roz out to dinner after Jack passed. Yeah. And uh, um, lovely woman, mm -hmm. and just kind of um, bewildered at the, the this world she found. How, how illogical the world of comics was, as we all are at times. Sure. There are times when you just sit there, and I, I know a lot about the business, mm -hmm. and you know a lot about the business, and there's times when we just kind of go. Why are they doing it like this? Why is it run this way? You would think that intelligent people would take the approach that saved the money, maybe, mm -hmm. that made people happy. Why do you do it the hard way that inconveniences and harms people? And um, 
and then you know, in television we have the same thing. There's, there's just a, there's a certain lack of logic. You get frustrated when there's a lack of logic. You can, you can understand sometimes why somebody does something that you know screws you over and makes them money. I can understand that. I don't like yeah. it. I can screw it up. Yeah. I can't understand it. So when someone screws you over in a way that costs everybody money. <laughs> Right. I don't know. It's that like makes sense. Yeah. It's like Wonderland logic, you know, and not in a good way. It just, right, it's it, nonsense. It, it, yeah, it just makes sense to somebody at the, in a weird twist in the mind, and then they, they snap out of it or they don't or whatever. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to ask you this question also about the debate in about cosplay in conventions and about how some people think, some retailers think that cosplay is, is uh, destroying conventions. Yeah, I got at the Phoenix convention, there was this one retailer who obviously was not selling as much as he thought he should. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was real angry, and Phoenix Convention had more cosplayers than I've ever seen per square inch. Uh -huh. And he was angry, and he, his point was, first of all, these people don't buy anything, they don't even have pockets. Right. <laughs> they, you know, the convention has, you know, 40,000, whatever the number was, 40,000 people, right. and 10,000 different costumes, so they're not gonna buy anything. Yeah. They don't come to buy anything, they come to be seen. They don't want to carry even carry around purchases because it doesn't fit with their outfit. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and also he, his belief was that they kept blocking the aisles and blocking this, the access to his display. People couldn't see his his display because you know um, Klingons were posing in front of it. Mm -hmm. And I do have a problem with this idea some people have of um, that if you're wearing a costume, you're allowed to block any aisle you want. And swing your plastic sword in your people's faces. Yeah. Um, uh, there's an enormous. Um, I, I, I like the cost. I like I like the ingenuity of most of the people. Yeah. I like the. I think it's very colorful. And the craftsmanship. The craftsmanship is sometimes brilliant. And some some of the costumes are so clever. There was a guy at San Diego who had taken a. Um, I guess it's a prefab store bought. Um, uh, Stormtrooper, Star, Star Wars Stormtrooper costume, and from the neck down, that's what he was, and from the head up, he was Cookie Monster. <laughs> and so he was the Wookiee Monster, I guess he called himself. Yes. And he had, okay. he had signs that say, the Force will not let you have cookies, or something like that, whatever it was. And it was Come to the dark side, we have cookies. That's right, yeah. It was, it was, it was that's very, what it is, yeah. yeah it was very funny. He, he had a bunch of different signs, he rotated. Yeah. Uh -huh. uh, and it was very funny and clever, I love that stuff. But I do, you know, then I saw this huge traffic jam in the aisles, and goodness knows it's at the comic convention, the aisles are hard enough to get through when people aren't standing and posing. Sure. Right. And I just thought, you know, one of these days we're going to see somebody injured by plastic swords. Mm -hmm. I saw a couple, I saw one near miss where somebody was swinging this plastic, or I don't know what it was made out of, it wasn't this. It wasn't a metal sword, it looked metal, but, right. but it's nevertheless, it came real close to a baby's face. Yeah. And, you know, two inches, and we would have had something really ugly happen there. And one of these days, it's going to happen, and there's going to be an outcry to restrict this more. Mm -hmm. um, I also think one of the strange things that's going on is probably somewhere in this country, there is a comic convention where they won't let you carry plastic weapons in a state that has open carry firearms. More than awesome. likely. In other words, no, no, you can't bring the plastic sword in. But you can bring but you the can real bring stuff AK-47 loaded in. That's really uh, outrageous. Yes. So. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think George Lucas could do the world a big favor, or 
J.J. Abrams, I guess, by giving the next generation of stormtroopers, like you said, pockets to carry their stuff in, or really tiny guns, because I have to dodge all these stormtroopers and Boba Fett guys carrying these big old honking guns. And then the, the Ghostbusters are, are even worse with their proton packs. Actually, you know, yeah. you know we, could, we could get a lot more people into Comic-Con if they put a size restriction on tote bags. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. Or just made you, if you have a party of three or more, one of you has to ride in the other one's tote bag. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah, I have to do it like marsupials. I saw, I saw one the other, at the last convention that could have housed Cirque du Soleil. Yeah. Uh, they're huge. Yes. Because they've got these people walking around like billboards now. Yeah. yeah. And they're advertising, and it's brilliant. There was one year, this one lady took this, they had this giant bag that DC was giving out as a Batman. Yeah. And she took the thing up to her or whatever, chucked, put some scissors, and turned it into a dress, and she was wearing it the Hysterical. next day. Hysterical. Really she was wearing, really actually smart. wearing the tote bag, and it fit her. That's <laughs> very funny. You know, next year they could probably, they could make them a little bit bigger, and they could be sleeping bags, so you could sleep out in front of yes. uh, Hall H in, in your in your. Speaking of bag. Hall H, my favorite cosplay ever, yeah. remember when that guy got stabbed in the, in the head with a pen? Oh. The yeah. next year someone came as him. With no, no costume, just a pen sticking up out of their head. I believe that's Larry Fine you're talking about. No. <laughs> nice. Tarantula! Uh, that turned me off from the Three Stooges for about a week. That really creeped me out when he got the the, the, the uh, fountain pen stuck in his forehead. Yeah, that was real. That yeah, was, I heard. I, I used to go out and see Larry at the motion picture at really? I saw him wow. And if you saw him three times, you heard the story of the pen about eight times. Because he would tell it over and over and over. Oh, my God, that's hysterical. And uh, he, was, he was a charming man, but he had about six anecdotes. And no matter what you asked him, you got one of the six anecdotes. <laughs> funny. Even if he told it to you ten minutes earlier. And uh, the other thing that's funny is I'd say to him, I'd start mentioning if there were movies, and I'd say, uh, I'd mention some film. I don't, rem I don't remember which one it was. No, I'd say, like, so you remember the movie um, um, uh, uh, Calling All Doctors? And he'd go, no, which one was that? I said, oh, that was the one where you got, where Mo broke the two-by-four over your head, and then the potter, and he goes, oh, yeah, I remember that one. <laughs> he, he remembered what he was hit with. He didn't remember the box. He remembered what they, what they hit wow. with. Wow. <laughs> did I tell the story about this before, about, about about when Larry died on the news. Did I tell that story before? No. When Larry died, this uh, this is a true story, and, it, and it's one of those pieces of videotape you just wish you had. Yeah. Larry passed away. He was, he was very old. He was in the most Christian country home. It was not a not a shock. And a news crew for Channel 2 locally rushed over to Mo Howard's house. Mo was alive. I think Mo died before the year was out. Yeah. Mo, Mo, and they got Mo on his front lawn. Mo came out on his front lawn to be on the news. And obviously, they had rushed this footage in and gotten it in and thrown it onto the air just before anybody really paused to look at it. So Mo is talking. They're saying, you know, the, the, the segment starts, and they said, uh, the great comedian Larry Fine of the Three Stooges has died today at the age of so-and-so. He was in the motion picture country home. And, uh, and the Three Stooges start, and, and they, then they cut to Mo. And Mo was so sad. He was crying. He was, oh. he was, his lower lip was trembling four times for every syllable that came out of it. Oh. And he was very sad. And, and then and they continued Mo's voiceover over a cliff package of the Three Stooges. Oh, no. So you hear Mo saying, he was like my brother. 
He was the greatest guy who ever lived. I love him so. And he's saying this as voiceover over footage of him ripping handfuls of hair out of Larry's head and running a saw across it and breaking pottery over it. It was a montage of him smashing things over Larry's head. Oh, my God. Wow. You're hearing Mo going, God, I loved him so much. He was such a wonderful guy. And they came back to the newsman. Who had that, that springtime for Hitler look on his face? And he went, um, uh, Larry Fine, at the age of 80. <laughs> oh my God! And it was so, and then I thought, my, I just took that and stared at it with no idea if I wanted to laugh or be horrified. Or, I said, I must have a reaction to this. I don't know what it is. <laughs> and then when Mo died a couple months later, they ran the exact same clip. No! Of him talking about Larry as he as he as he, wow. as, he as he gouged his eyes out. Ah. <laughs> oh my god! Do you have a favorite stooge? Oh, you know I love them all. Yeah. I, I have a fondness for Shemp. Yeah. The same way Shemp is kind of the scrappy do of the stooge. <laughs> yeah. um, oh. I have a fondness for Shemp because I think he was the most talented comedian. In uh -huh. Really? Um, why? Why do you think so? I'm not arguing. I think he was just a good comedian. Yeah, yeah. he did the and, and I think Joe Palookas and stuff think, too, right? Yeah, I think he was a good comic actor. Yeah. And with the the thing that happened was he came into the act at the time when the budgets were being pared down when they were making this. You know, every year of the Stooges, yeah, their careers was like this. The contract would be up, and and short comedies they were making these two reelers were becoming less and less lucrative as theaters stopped burning them. Right. So every year, some guy at Columbia would sit down and say, okay, the Stooges contact are up. Can we do another series with them, another another two years with them, another contract? And some else would say, well, if we do them for this dollar figure, we can get by. Right. So that was the budget. Right. And they just made them cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Till the end, they were taking stock footage from other, other shorts filming a couple new scenes and calling it a new comedy. Mm -hmm. Oh, that, right. I, I had to go through a bunch of those on digital uh, QC for uh, posting online, and it would confuse the heck out of us which episodes we were watching. Yeah, well, it used, used to be on Channel 11 in L.A. They had a Three Stooges show hosted by a man named Don Lamond, who was related to Larry. He was a distant relative of Larry's. Okay. And he hosted these things, and they would put two of them in a half hour. Mm. They would chop them down. And just put two arbitrary, and one was always a Curly. Right. And the other one would be maybe Curly, maybe Shemp, maybe Joe Besser. And once in a while, they got the same, they got the remake in the same half hour. <laughs> yeah, so you see the same exact footage and the same plot, except it's got, it's got Joe Besser in it instead of Curly. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Uh, and, and nobody noticed. Uh, <laughs> nobody, I don't think nobody on the air noticed. I'd sit there and go, deja vu. This is the same... This is the same thing. Rings on the finger and bells on the toes. Yes, mm -hmm. same, we, we've seen this short. We saw it 12 minutes ago. Oh, my um, God. Yeah, I couldn't follow the plots to any but, they, but, but Shemp was saving those those, those cheaper and cheaper comedies. Oh, yeah. He's the funniest thing in them. And then Joe Besser was doing even lower budget films, and he was the best thing in them. Mm -hmm. and I know it's sacrilege around some Stooges fans to suggest that anybody was as wonderful as Curly, mm -hmm. but... I thought Curly was, you know, act was, got stale pretty fast. I thought Curly had 
you know, three, four, four noises and two facial expressions, mm -hmm. and um, Shemp was actually a, a funnier guy in many Fair ways. Enough. He just was in lousier films. Mm -hmm. And then people get people like hate Joe Dorita. I, I love the movies because, because <laughs> you know some of those films were wonderful. Yeah, but. Those films wouldn't have been wonderful with curling in them. No. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they say, I, I had a friend who was kept saying, Joe DeRita's just not funny in those movies. And I'd say, neither are Larry and Moe. No. Right. But, but he has more of an interesting of a character. I mean, he's a cook, and you know, there's something about him. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, he was, he was a burlesque comic. Mm -hmm. One of the last of the burlesque comics. There's, yeah. there's, today, there's one left, Earth Fence, and the last burlesque comic. Oh, oh really? Wow. He's 102, I think. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah, and uh, those guys are the dying breed. I used to go to Vegas uh, in the 80s at the Hacienda Hotel, which is no longer there. They blew it up. Uh, <laughs> I was there when they blew it up. Oh, my God. I had been dating a dancer. Lance, she wasn't in it when Lance it blew up. show, she danced it there for a couple of years. Then they left. Uh -huh. And when and and she she when I was in Vegas, New Year, they put up New Year's Eve. Because, That's great. Because of course on New Year's Eve in Vegas, they needed something to attract a crowd. Right, right. Well, and, <laughs> and, and they needed something a little, make it a little more noisy. Can we just be bigger, just a little bit yeah, bigger? Yeah, yeah. You know what can we? Let's blow up a hotel. Anyway. Yeah. So, but there was this show at the Hacienda called uh, Minsky's Burlesque. Uh -huh. They had it had two guys named Dexter Maitland and Irv Benson, who were the last. Dexter Maitland was the last straight man from Burlesque. Mm -hmm. He's the guy in the night they were in Minsky's who sang "Take Ten Terrific Girls but Only Nine Costumes." Uh -oh, right. <laughs> you see, you yeah. see him all throughout that that movie. Yeah. And Irv Benson is the guy who most people remember as Sidney Spritzer on the Milton Berle show, the guy who heckled them in the box. Okay. Mm -hmm. Go to Google and. To, to YouTube and search for Sidney Spritzer, you'll see Irv Benson in action. Okay. These two guys would do old burlesque sketches at uh, at the, the Hacienda show in between um, uh, strippers and then there were naked women dancing and things like that. Mm -hmm. And the audience would come for the naked women and just go out loving mm -hmm. Irv and Dexter. Wow. Um, and uh, these old pros, and I, I would take them out to dinner and just Ask them for stories about the burlesque. The, the, the last two guys who did that. Right. And they were so wonderful. They were so funny. And Irv's still around. There's a documentary on his life out now called uh, The Last First Comic. Oh, wow. And he was, he was a guy who just... He's, he lives in Brooklyn now. He's 102. And he's, he's probably still funny. I haven't seen him in years. Wow. We love that kind of stuff. One time, Len Wein and I were in Vegas. I love Len And... Um, at the um, at the Stardust, they had this show called Enter the Night, and I said to Len, "We're going to go see that show." And he said, "Why are we going to that one? Why are we going to this show?" I said, I, "We're going to go see Enter the Night. We're going to go see it. You, I'll tell you the reason you want to see it. It's got beautiful naked women. Okay, reason enough." Mm -hmm. I said, "But what you're going to like is you're going to like George Carl, C A R L, not George Carlin, George Carl." Mm -hmm. Okay. And he said, "What does he do? I've never heard of George Carl." I said, Len, I'm going to tell you what this man does. I swear to you, I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to answer this question accurately. You won't believe me. It's one of the most entertaining acts you've ever seen in your life. For 20 minutes, he gets tangled with the microphone cord. Oh, how funny. <laughs> what? <laughs> the man gets tangled in the microphone cord. And we went to see George, I took him to see George Carl, and at the end of the show, at the end of George Carl's spot, I was like, no, no, bring George Carl back. No more naked women. We want to see this man again. And 
And once again, go to YouTube, somebody who's listening to this, and search for George Carl. Okay. C-A-R-L, George Carl. There, you'll see a couple of times he was on with Johnny Carson. Johnny loved him. And he would have him come on. One of the most brilliant, not a stand-up comic, he was a mime. He, was a, he, did, a, he did a wordless, largely wordless act. Okay. Doing, doing comedy, and you, what you see, it's like poetry. A guy who figured out, he did this act for 40, 50 years. He figured out how to be funny every second of the act, and how to know every facial expression, every gesture. It is, it is an absolute work of art. It's like, Mr. you know about magicians who have done an act they've done so many times mm -hmm. that they have learned how to do every single move to precision. It's the same type of thing. Mm -hmm. It's the same incredible control of one's body and the experience that comes from doing an act. Three, three shows a day for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. Is there anybody like that currently on the rise, like any young comedian who is doing more physical stuff than the verbal stuff. Well, he's not a young comedian. There's a there's a comedy juggler named um, Charlie Fry. Charlie Fry. Yeah, mm -hmm. he's just a wonderful, wonderful. I used to we had dinner with him that night. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I took you to see. I took with Paul. Paul and I used to go to Vegas for one day. Mm -hmm. Oh my god. You, you can't do that now. They're, they used to have flights home at one a two a.m. Especially oh, okay. when it was raining, because like, oh, I hate the rain. Yeah, more yeah. About, well, so we we'd fly to, we'd, we'd, we'd go to the airport, leave my car there. We take out the 10 a.m. flight to Vegas, yeah. get in in time, we get a buffet lunch yeah. at uh, uh, some hotel, we gamble and we yeah. go around and go to shows. I took him to see, uh, Charlie was headlining at the Tropicana. That's right. And I That's took right. him to see, and we went out with Charlie afterwards, uh -huh. and uh, did I take you backstage with watch the show, watch the chorus girls take showers? No, uh, that, that was somebody was, else. Oh, okay, that was somebody else. There was a but chicken I, back there. There was you have a duck. That, 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 yeah. that, that, that was a different story. But I did win two hundred bucks at Kino, which you said was at. Was yeah, I said, just I, said, awesome. I said you can't win at Kino, and, and I did. You did. <laughs> um, oh, and we went to McDonald's. Yeah, and tried the pizza. Oh yeah. Oh, it's yeah. hideous. We, oh. <laughs> we walked past. We were in Circus Circus. Yeah. Uh -huh. And and we walked past McDonald's. They were advertising McPizza. Oh yeah. No. I said to Paul. What's McPizza? We'd never heard of McPizza. I think they were test marketing it. Yeah. And he said, we don't know. So we had decided we had to get one. We went of course. Went to little McPizza. It was, like a, it, was an, it was an individual pizza. Okay. We got one. We split it in half. And we each took two bites. Yeah. Uh -huh. The first bite you took, you went, and then you went, wait, it can't be that bad. Let me take another bite. Yeah. And we took a second bite. And we went and we threw them away. And in the trash thing, there were like all these McPizzas with two bites. <laughs> <laughs> I will say it was cuisine perfectly suited to the uh, location. So, circus, circus. You know, the where else are you gonna eat a McPizza? Yes. Or not? We, we actually found something too tacky for circus. circus. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah there's the what the hell bite and the, the oh no. So we, we, so we went to see Charlie Fry, yeah. and he does this, the same thing. This, this, he's been, got this act he's been doing for 30 years, uh -huh. three shows a night or whatever it is, and it's just, it's a comedy, he's a comedy juggler with a little magic thrown in, and he's just incredible. Yeah, he's, he's a lovely, amazing. funny man. He's got a couple educational videos out, and they are just spectacular. Yeah, he's just great. Did I, did I tell Charlie Fry stories on this, on this podcast? No. Okay. I was at, I, uh, Charlie used to be playing, for a while he was playing at the, um, uh, are, we, are we going over time here? We got time for something? Well, we got time. Uh, how, how long are we? Uh, just so you guys know, we are just over the hour mark. So, so should we break this in two? Like, right We're definitely going to break, but uh, you can just keep going. Do you and want to come back for Charlie's stories next week? Okay.
Yeah, I don't know what we're going to have for dinner next week. But I'll, I'll nice. be here. I'm going to stay all the time. i got a good parking space outside. Oh, perfect. I'm going to stay here. I'll just sleep over here on the floor until I next love week's it. podcast. Right. I love That's it. my I space. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad, Ezra. <laughs> okay. okay. Somebody gets under the piano. Somebody gets <laughs> under the piano. That's, the, the, that's already occupied. Oh, okay. Yeah, Emily's wow. there. Oh. Yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, it's <laughs> out to the barn with the thylacine. All right, so come back next week for some Charlie Fry stories. This has been another episode of Radio Rashi. If you've enjoyed this episode, let everyone know by leaving a review in the iTunes store. It's a great way to help others find us. You can also leave comments on RadioRashi.com, Facebook.com forward slash Radio Rashi, or follow us on Twitter at Radio Rashi or at Paul underscore Dini to leave us questions. Thanks for listening, and tell your friends. Radio Rashi.